Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Who's in and who's out? Martha Jones teaches history at Johns Hopkins University. She examines this question and gives us the prehistory of the 14th Amendment, which gave citizenship rights to African Americans, and shows us that people who didn't have rights still claimed those even when the courts weren't ready to do so. Can people be deported who arrived here legally? Does it even matter whether someone arrived under the auspices of the law, and is it possible to not be a legally recognized person and yet have rights? These questions are on the table, not only through President Trump, as Professor Jones reminds us, but they have been with us from the beginning of the Republic. I joined a conversation with Professor Jones on these topics, where we discussed her book called Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America. Welcome to Think About It. I'm really pleased and excited to have Martha Jones on the program today, who is a professor at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, professor of history. First of all, Martha, thank you for making time today. Happy to be here. I heard from Patricia Williams, a legal scholar who's professor of law at Columbia last week, and from several other people over the summer that I had to read your book, Birthright Citizens. And we'd met before once or twice, and both of my sisters had also urged me to read it. So there's a kind of family connection. And your book is really the prehistory of what people know as the 14th Amendment. You're sort of tracing who actually drove the effort to give birthright citizenship to especially African-Americans. And we jump in today's election day. The 14th Amendment was ratified 150 years ago in July of 1868. So did you vote this morning already? Did you go and do your civic duty? I live in the city of Baltimore, as you might know, and it turns out that the voting machines are down at my polling place. So when we finish today, I'm going to go back over and see if they're up and running. I hope they are. Wow. So you went in and the machines were not working. That's right. I'm kind of speechless. And how how can that happen? How can that be remedied? That is the most fundamental way in which we can express ourselves as citizens, right? So, Yeah. And Maryland is a state that has early voting. So folks have been voting up until November 1st. But today, by 7.15 this morning, nobody had cast a vote. I had another meeting. So fortunately for me, today I have the flexibility to go back later. But certainly your reaction is most deserved when it comes to, of course, working people who are trying to get to the polls first thing this morning before they headed off to work. So we'll hope they get it up and running and that folks can come back. Right. And because people who have to make time or have either work or child care, elder care, family care, or commute or something, they can't just go back and forth during the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And of course, our early voting in Maryland has transformed that dilemma for many people because we have days leading up to the election where folks can get to the polls more at their convenience. And so there's more flexibility than we've ever had. But it's a little chilling. I think you're right when on election day, people are standing in line and can't actually cast their ballot. It doesn't even express my feeling to say, I hope you'll be able to cast your vote today. This book is Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America. How did you get interested in this topic? Which, And we'll get to the 14th Amendment again a little bit in the conversation. Sure. Which is in the news 
being debated and you've written and talked about this, how why it is still something that is being contested when it may seem obvious to some people. How did you get interested first to research this history of how we got to the 14th Amendment? When you worked in Manhattan, can you say something also? What was your day-to-day work like? What was the law for you then? It obviously, as you said, it wasn't the Supreme Court declaring something. Two short stories, one perhaps more scholarly. For a long time, a very long time, the story of race and citizenship before the Civil War was told through a single U.S. Supreme Court case, a notorious one, Dred Scott versus Sanford, which in 1857 permitted the court to proclaim that no black person, be they a slave or a free person, could be a citizen of the United States. And I was skeptical. I think I had a healthy skepticism about the capacity of any one U.S. Supreme Court case to tell an entire history. But that didn't stop historians from continuing to write and argue and otherwise examine Dred Scott. But I thought there must be another way to get at this question. And that led me to reflect back on what were years I spent as a public interest lawyer in New York City, working out of a legal services office on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where my day-to-day work took place in the city's trial courts, in family court, in civil court, in housing court. So in part, I come to approach this book as a practitioner who still has a fascination with the local courthouse and believes that what happens there is important, and a historian who thought there likely was another story to tell about African-Americans in early 19th century courthouses if we took that approach to the archive. So those two things come together, and then the good fortune, the serendipity, the archives actually offer up the kind of material that permits me to commit to the project and to write the book. And your book is a history of people who in some cases, go to the court, sometimes are taken to court and use the law in their everyday lives to win their rights or defend themselves in some ways. But you do this before you get to this larger question, which you just said is the kind of the Dred Scott decision or a Supreme Court decision that bestows constitutional rights or obligations or fails to do so on us. Absolutely. The kinds of things that my clients in the 1980s and 90s, poor and working poor people in New York City, the kinds of things that they would talk about as rights or the right to decent housing, the right to exercise custody and care over one's children, the right to subsistence public benefits. So we did talk about rights in a way that was vernacular, not always linked expressly to either the state constitution or the U.S. constitution. But we understood in a day-to-day way the power of the order of a judge, for example, that directs a landlord to restore heat or hot water. That does not look quite like a constitutional right, though that kind of right is very much up for debate in New York during those years, whether in fact that should be a right. Is decent housing a human right and is part of what gets folded into those debates? So the rights framework is 
or was in my practice more varied, more porous, more elastic, and oftentimes deeply meaningful, not because we were reinterpreting the 14th Amendment on a day-to-day basis, but we were extracting out of um, a legal culture, out of courthouses, out of the work of judges, the kinds of guarantees that had deep meaning in people's lives. So when I approached this book, I wanted to know in the early 19th century what African Americans were doing in those same sorts of courthouses. What did they think rights looked like in their everyday lives? And it turns out that, yes, they have developing and ultimately a strong sense of rights, but it's not always, their sensibilities are not always so far from the people who are animating high legal culture like the U.S. Supreme Court or the kinds of questions that the Supreme Court is interested in these years. So it turns out, in at least in my reading, that there isn't a, a gulf or a gap between high law and low law or the vernacular and and the formal, that in fact, in the 19th century, those things are much more intimately connected than I think we had appreciated before. It's a fascinating story. And a lot of it, I think, opens up a perspective on America that is as much driven by people who are already living in the country before the Supreme Court. And maybe the Supreme Court doesn't always need to look at every single thing. As we know, the court decides what cases to take. And you're saying this is especially African-Americans who are living in the country, who live in Baltimore and then in adjacent sort of states, etc. And can you say something about their self-understanding at this point? Of course, they're living, they have families, um, some are freemen, they have businesses, they're engaging in all sorts of normal daily transactions. What's their understanding as subjects? Because I think your book corrects this idea that it's a few white male lawyers sitting in a high court robed and you have a couple of these people, but I think you really shift the balance to say, what's the understanding of people, as you said, in the 80s and 90s, those were your clients, but what is it in the, in the 1830s and 40s in Baltimore? So what's important is to appreciate the context in which ultimately a debate about citizenship, from which a debate about citizenship will emerge. And there were really two things that drive African-Americans to scrutinize the Constitution, to study state law, to read treatises and judicial opinions. The first is a movement that we call colonization. Colonizationists are probably the largest of the political movements of the early 19th century. These are Americans who, mostly white Americans, who anticipate the end of slavery. It might be gradual, it might take many years, but they anticipate the end of slavery and they are certain and committed to a future view of the United States as a white man's country. The end of slavery poses then a dilemma, and the colonizationist solution is to work by way of persuasion and coercion, and sometimes by way of compulsion, to remove former slaves from the country. We call it colonization or removal in the 19th century. Today, we might call it deportation. But African Americans are vulnerable, not only politically and psychically, but they believe themselves to be literally vulnerable to the aspirations of colonizationists. And they think that citizenship might be a means of resisting that compulsion. 
paired with colonization are what we call black laws. And these are state-level laws that are passed to some degree in the North, but certainly throughout the South, that regulate the day-to-day lives of former slaves, where they can work, how they can worship, whether or not they can travel, the terms of their custody and care of their children. And these laws, while they are onerous in their literal terms, come to be understood as another mechanism by which former slaves are being pressured to leave the country. So the combination of colonization and black laws leaves African Americans not only feeling vulnerable, but facing some formidable opponents who are aiming through law and politics to press them out of the nation quite literally. They object. And once they object, they need to develop a set of ideas that might permit them to resist this kind of coerced removal or self-deportation, as some people put it. And citizenship, they hope, is that tactic, that if they are citizens of the United States, they are entitled to a set of protections pursuant to the Constitution, and they will be able to resist what is the episodic but very real pressure to leave the country. Can you say something about the responsibilities that these people have at this point? So you say they don't have all the rights of white Americans, white male Americans at this point, but they act and they live in cities and towns and counties, etc. So they have all sorts of responsibilities. And citizenship always has two angles to it. We have the privilege to vote today, hopefully you'll vote. What are the obligations they have as black Americans, African Americans at that point? Sure. By the 1820s, they're able to point to military service. Among them are veterans of the American Revolution or the sons of men who served during the American Revolution. There are veterans of the War of 1812, and Baltimore is not an unimportant place during that conflict. So they point to military service. They, of course, point to labor, whether they have labored for wages or many of them themselves or in their family histories have waged without compensation as enslaved people. They argue that their labor has built the nation in a quite literal sense. And so this becomes part of the debate. They are paying taxes. And in Baltimore, this is a a recurrent debate because free African-Americans pay, for example, school taxes in Baltimore. However, their children are not entitled to attend the public schools in the city, though they do attend private, oftentimes church-sponsored schools. So they meet those sorts of obligations as taxpayers. And then when we look more into the everyday life of the courthouse, what we recognize is that they are, through a really extraordinary range of proceedings, everything from complaints against assault to the defense of their church property against creditors and predators to insolvency petitions, challenges to apprenticeship contracts, applications for travel permits and gun permits. We come to recognize that these are people who are in their own way and by the means available to them, cobbling together a set of rights, fragile, imperfect, but a set of rights that permit them to increasingly appear as rights-bearing people and perhaps, if not equivalent to white men as citizens, peers to them. And what you're laying out is that this term rights-bearing people goes much beyond 
with the 14th Amendment work in the deliberately concision and simplicities layout. So there are lots of things. And a lot of the court cases you look at are, as you said, someone suing somebody because they're getting evicted and are they going to be able to keep their furniture or can they pay their rent a little later, things like that. Can they travel back and forth? So some of the cases are quite mundane and you would think, well, anybody who lives a life will at some point encounter such a conflict and then they go to the courts and the question doesn't come up in each case of what is their standing in this court. And in some cases, which I found fascinating, in some cases, African-Americans are able to sue, can win. Occasionally, they can actually testify, which is one of the major legal considerations. So there's kind of a messy history. And there's also one between states and the federal government. But I think you're making a point that it doesn't touch yet in every single case on citizenship as the one monolithic thing that we understand it today. No, so I appreciate the term messy, because I came to this project and I thought I was going to answer a question with a yes or no, ultimately. Were African-American citizens or were they not? But what the research revealed is hardly a yes or no, but precisely that this is a fraught, highly contested, very unevenly regarded question. I offer the example of not the U.S. Constitution, but the Maryland state constitution in 1850. Maryland rewrites its constitution from scratch. And it is a long and very complex process. But one of the questions that these very highly placed lawmakers aspire to answer is, what precisely is the status of former slaves before our Constitution? And they have a blank slate. They have nothing but time. The debates last for more than a year. And remarkably to me, they cannot figure it out. Some people argue that African Americans are human beings. And if they are in the state of Maryland, they enjoy a fundamental set of rights. Other people turn them denizens and suggest that they really only enjoy a slim set of rights as residents without any enduring claim to the state. Other people say they have no rights at all and they are permanently subject to the whim and the will of white lawmakers and perhaps even white Americans on the street. And so the debate is interesting, but the real key, I think, to this study is that in the end, they fail. They cannot agree. And they sort of punt. And they say, rather than giving a finality to the question, which is part of what law is in a big picture sense designed to do, rather than giving predictability to African Americans, another sort of bedrock principle of law, they punt and they say, well, let the legislature figure it out. And the legislature will in the 1850s piecemeal and in a very episodic way continue to regulate the lives of African Americans. But this is what is characteristic. I could tell the same story in Congress. I could still tell the same story in high courts because, in fact, for reasons that are complex, the nation really does not know how to think about African Americans, former slaves before the law, be it state statutes or state constitution or the U.S. Constitution itself. All historians, you know, the Dred Scott case, a terrible case that actually is recognized as one of the terrible, morally corrupt decisions of the court. And this is in 1857. Which deprives all black Americans of the possibility of citizenship. Even that case, and we'll get into this in a moment, 
not every state legislature will take it as binding and will sort of ignore it. But before that, did you think there would be an answer? I think people would have been more clear and said, okay, we are the people responsible for making laws, thinking through who is part of our country. We would. So the messiness is, it's a bit of a surprise and it's a bit of, there's some excitement because it then what it shows that, that the people in the streets and in the cities and in the city of Baltimore, so African-Americans there, are not wrong to keep on pushing or saying, we are rights-bearing, look at us, we're human beings. There's an openness. It's not that it's ruled and a clear-cut case. No, in fact, part of what buoys them is that they have highly placed allies, treatise writers, judges, legislators, members of Congress who endorse this view that, in fact, they are citizens by virtue of birthright, that there is no color line in the U.S. Constitution that draws a distinction between, for example, people said to be black and people said to be white, um, and that there are only two categories in the United States, citizen and alien, and there is no intermediate category provided for in the Constitution. And so they are emboldened, I think, by these debates, as messy as they are, as you can imagine, because these are political thinkers, because these are advocates, they are going to seize upon those pronouncements, those rulings, those writings that support their view, knowing, of course, that they have strong opposition as well, but they are building a case. And this is how one builds a case, right? Through logic and through through close reading and through the ideas of powerful allies. The African-American writers contributing to these debates are most of them largely self-educated. I think one went, some went to school in Canada or there was a kind of question, but there's a limit of what kind of formal training they have. But they're very good at actually writing jurisprudence and political treatises to say this is, they're actually contributing to this discourse. So it's not a bunch of white men sitting there thinking, how do we think about this? But African-Americans studying, researching, and finding effective strategies to make this argument. So one of the questions I had was, how do they know so much about law? And that takes me, for example, back to the earliest African-American newspapers. Freedom's Journal is the first published in 1827. And it turns out that even the masthead of Freedom's Journal invokes the Constitution, and that from the start, that paper, which was invested in many kinds of projects, including the anti-slavery cause, was deeply devoted to providing its readership with a kind of primer in the questions related to the Constitution, to citizenship, to rights. And so we, we can appreciate there how African-Americans come to be self-taught. When I began to examine Black institutions, like the many African-American churches that are founded in Baltimore in the early part of the 19th century, when we look at those articles of incorporation, we begin to appreciate that these are leaders, men mostly, who are teaching them themselves the fine points of how to go about incorporating a church in the state of Maryland, how to structure its leadership, 
and governance. These aren't casual or evident matters in the early 19th century. These are men who are teaching themselves these things, if you will, on the job. Now, there are moments when they recognize that they would benefit from some expertise. And so it's no mistake, if you will, that this study is set in Baltimore because Baltimore is home to some of the early 19th century's most esteemed legal minds. Roger Tawney, who is the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, William Wirt, who is credited with really establishing, in a modern sense, the office of the U.S. Attorney General, Reverdy Johnson, who is renowned for his eloquence and persuasiveness before the U.S. Supreme Court, that there are men in the city of Baltimore to whom African Americans turn. They're prepared to pay the requisite fee, and in exchange, what they would like is an opinion that they hope might endorse their growing analysis of the question of citizenship. So they are also forging relationships with highly placed legal thinkers and taking advantage of where they sit in the literal legal geography of the nation to try and win some allies who will help them build their case. They don't possess all the expertise that they might. There are, from our kind of 21st century omniscient perspective. There are things they miss and overlook that you wish you could feed them there that would have perhaps further fueled their arguments. But nonetheless, they are really creative, ambitious, improvisational even in their approach to the law and the question of citizenship. Very different, right, than the seemingly kind of systematic or scientific approach that treatise writers are taking in this period. These are men and some women who very much come to law as an instrument, as a tactic, as a strategy for their well-being. It won't be until the post-war period in Maryland when African Americans will more systematically study law, practice law, ultimately sit on the bench. But these men and women, even in these early decades, are able to cobble together much of what they need to know to make a case for, I don't want to get too far ahead of us, but make the case for what ultimately Congress will formalize and what will become ratified in the Constitution, which is that birthright is, in fact, a fundamental dimension of American democracy. Since this discussion is still with us, what is the anxiety around it. And you outline the larger global context of this. And you're saying, especially through sailors, you know, black seamen who are traveling up and down the coast to South Africa, mostly, and news from Haiti or stories from Brazil. Where does the anxiety come from that this would fundamentally alter the United States in ways that are just terrible. When you said that white men wanted to keep it a white men's country, it's based on all sorts of racist assumptions. But where does the anxiety come from? And you touch on it in the book. What do people know? What could happen? What do they fear? I think there's what is for me a very important letter that Roger Tawney writes at the end of his life. It's after Dred Scott. He's quite elderly and somewhat infirm. He's beginning to reflect and take stock of his life. He's disappointed that Dred Scott has not enjoyed the kind of deference that he expects his decisions to enjoy. And he, somewhat uncharacteristically... And to go um, to sort of one sentence, so Dred Scott yes. is a... So the man Dred Scott, so he's the opponent of Sanford. So 
just tell me what the case is about. And it's, it's Sure. George Scott is an enslaved man living in the state of Missouri who travels with his owner to free territory, including the Minnesota Territory. And when he returns to Minnesota years later, he's now married. He has a wife and a family. They begin to worry about the future and the integrity of their family. And they make the argument, an argument that had been made many times before in Missouri, they make the argument that because they had lived in free territory, that they were free people. His case extends over more than a decade, but ultimately at the U.S. Supreme Court in 1857, Chief Justice Taney will conclude that Scott and no black person can be a citizen of the United States. Hence, he does not have standing right, or authority to bring a case in federal court. His case is dismissed, and, and, and he remains a slave. And this is important because cases go to federal courts, for instance, when people are from two different states. So now this drives black Americans in all sorts of situations, especially between free territories and slaveholding states. So Tawny says this is settled by now. And then you go to this letter later on where he reflects on this. It it didn't enjoy the, the kind of approval and popularity that he had wanted. No, he's much maligned. And he's taking stock of a long and distinguished life. And What he says is, if you want to understand, I'm paraphrasing, but if you want to understand my life, you must remember that I lived through the horrors of Santo Domingo. Well, that phrase might be a little obscure for us today, but when Tawny refers to Santo Domingo, he's referring, in fact, to the French colony of one time Saint-Domingue, now the independent Republic of Haiti. He's referring to the Haitian Revolution. And he says, to understand my life, you must understand, right, that I have lived with the specter, with the fear, with the anxiety that a Haitian Revolution or something like it might unfold in the United States. And he, to the Haitian Revolution, particularly in its early years, is the role that free people of color played in allying themselves with enslaved people against French colonial and metropolitan officials. And so, as a summing up of a life, it is to say that Free people of color, like those I write about, who are in the local courthouse making rights-like claims, conducting themselves like rights-bearing people, present a real threat in Tawny's view, not only to the institution of slavery, but to the peace and to the social order. And so Tawny's Dred Scott decision, as I reread it through that lens, is really one about ensuring that should a state legislature, or should the Congress decide at any point in the future to remove African Americans, the way is clear in a constitutional sense, that African Americans have no rights before the Constitution as citizens, which means they are, and this is important, they are in some sense akin to Native Americans who have under Tawny's watch, on Tawny's watch on the Supreme Court, have been removed from the United States as well. So Tawny is a witness also to Indian removal, though he doesn't preside over those cases. Tawny is aware, as are African Americans, of the example of Indian removal. And for Tawny, it's important to keep the way clear to remove African Americans if and when it is necessary. And for African Americans, 
it is clear that they need a legal and constitutionally uh, defensible claim to resist the removal that Native people had been subjected to. So what happens in the wake of Dred Scott, and you outlined this, not everybody hears about it right away, but then it gets discussed. They, it's kind of hard to track how people learn about it. It is being discussed. It is a devastating decision for African Americans that with the stroke of the pen of the Supreme Court now, there's the, the future is kind of barred to be full citizens. And then so we're going from 1857 now to 1868, let's say. So your book is not really about the Civil War and the debates leading up to that, but this underground long discussion, this messy, complicated discussion, and it wasn't just one thing. It wasn't just should black people be given the vote. It's about many other aspects. And when you say rights bearing, I always think yes, and rights bearing, but as you said, responsibilities bearing, yes, but no rights. You have to pay taxes, you have to be, you pay fees for schools, for services, which resonates with today's debate, but people feel, well, I'm not going to pay taxes for these things if I don't actually participate in them. So these people are saying, well, I'm paying taxes and I don't get to participate in the life of the community. So there's a period of some nine years the Civil War happens when and obviously that would take an entire college degree or a lifetime to understand. But what leads up to the ratification of the 14th Amendment? What changes then? Your original research question had been, this is all solved in a couple of Supreme Court decisions. If we can look at the 14th Amendment and what changes then? Is it the combination of your book and you can say, oh, great, now... We got everything we wanted. Yeah. Well, you're right. A lot happens. We could do a whole semester on what happens. And and we do. (laughs) Where I work, we do. But let me try and give an answer that helps us appreciate, as you point out, that there is nothing foreordained about the 14th Amendment and its birthright citizenship provision in particular. And a few things happen. The first is that with the Civil War and emancipation and the early wake of the war, African-Americans persist in this campaign to distinguish themselves as rights-bearing people, as members of the body politic, people who had once brought modest habeas corpus proceedings to challenge the apprenticeship of their children, now challenge the constitutionality of apprenticeship. I'm going to stop you for one second, just for our listeners and my benefit. Tell me what habeas corpus means and then why apprenticeships were so Ah. problematic for black Americans. Thank you. So apprenticeship or denture, as it's sometimes called, is a tactic by which in a post-slavery world, white masters, white manufacturers, white men could control the labor and the lives, in particular, of African-American children in a city like Baltimore. Parents use the writ of habeas corpus, the great writ that demands The production of the body permits a court to use its authority to review, for example, the detention of a child or the conditions under which a child is being held. Parents before the Civil War used the writ of habeas corpus, African-American parents do, to bring indenture contract holders before the court to secure the custody of their children or to steer the conditions under which their children work. And apprenticeship laws are written differently for white and black children in a city like Baltimore, and black children are much more vulnerable to apprenticeship as a result. Well, after the war, with the abolition of slavery in the state of Maryland, a new constitution in the state, but before we get to 
1865 and the 13th Amendment or 1868 and the 14th Amendment, even before that, black parents are now coming into the courts and not simply challenging the detention of a particular child. They are challenging the whole scheme, right, as drawing a color line that is impermissible before the Constitution. And they win, which is to say Maryland's apprenticeship scheme is declared unconstitutional. So it's important to recognize from my vantage point that African-Americans are not waiting for the 13th and the 14th Amendment. They are acting in ways that are consonant with their view of themselves as free people and of citizens as rights-bearing individuals. And as I like to put it sometimes, Congress will catch up, right? Congress will catch up with them in 1865 and abolish slavery in 1867 as it debates the terms of what become the 14th Amendment. But African-Americans are already acting on the kinds of principles, the kinds of assumptions, the kinds of rights that they believe flow from their new status as citizens. They're going to applaud the 14th Amendment, but not because it is a newfangled innovation, but precisely because it is the sort of remedy that they have long, long been advocating for. Now Congress and ultimately the nation through ratification will agree. Can you... Tell me something about the 14th Amendment's effect on the Constitution. And I've had this conversation with different people on the podcast. And actually, I made somebody laugh and said, people tend to think the First Amendment is more important than the 14th because it's number one and not number 14 or number 26, which lowers the voting age to 18 in 1971. And they laughed out loud. And I said, I actually don't think that is such a common error to think number one is really important, number two is really important. And then it goes down the list. But what does an amendment really do to the original text of the Constitution? It's such a great question, and you already have a, a very good working sense about how there are many ways to answer that question. My answer is that it is a revolution because it not only makes 4 million-plus former slaves citizens, right? not just free people, but now citizens, it does so retroactively, we come to learn that African Americans are citizens going back to their birth on U.S. soil. So this is a powerful rewriting of the national narrative and of the story of the nation and of Black Americans to it. We see this illustrated in 1870, when Hiram Revels, who is the first African-American to sit in the U.S. Senate, arrives in Washington to take his seat, there are those who object to the seating of Revels. And what they say is, Revels may be a citizen in 1870, but he hasn't been a citizen for the requisite nine years, such that he can be a senator. Why? Because the 14th Amendment was ratified only in 1868. Right? Those who oppose him say he's only been a citizen for two years. Well, he assumes his seat. And with that, we see the conclusion of the Senate, at least, that Revels didn't become a citizen simply marked at 1868. He became a citizen retroactively to his birth and, of course, had been 
by that legal logic, a citizen for many decades before he comes to take his seat in Congress. So these are real questions sometimes, but they are also narrative questions about the relationship of black Americans to the nation. Men like those about whom I write, indeed, from the perspective of the 14th Amendment, were deprived of their birthright citizenship for all those decades. It wasn't simply that they were converted to citizens, that they were impermissibly deprived of a citizenship going all the way back. And your book writes about them and works with what they did and treats them as saying they are citizens. It's just that the country hasn't caught up with them because they behave and conduct themselves as rights-bearing people and say, they're not really standing before the law waiting to become citizens, but the, your whole book is about that actually people behave and act in ways and don't wait for the law to give them their identity, but say, this is who we are already in the nation. So I think that's yeah. a really important part. And the 14th Amendment says, and Patricia Williams talked about this quite a bit, that it doesn't say citizens, but it says all persons. And she said, this means the responsibilities given to citizens and the protection given by the law are extended to all persons residing in this country. So it could be people waiting to become citizens, could be, you know, foreign nationals who are not in the diplomatic service, can be people under age who can't vote, etc. So they don't have certain rights. So you're treating them effectively as citizens acting without the legal imprimatur of saying you are already given this status by the court. Sure. And the people I write about are, as we've talked about, you know, savvy about the Constitution. They look at that not often invoked language that requires the president to be a natural born citizen of the United States. Well, they look at that language and they say, well, my goodness. Right. If a president is a natural born citizen, what is the distinction right, between that natural bornedness and the natural bornedness of anyone born in the United States? There does seem to be, even in the original text of the Constitution, the acknowledgement that there is something like a natural born citizen. It is only, of course, for black Americans that that interpretation will be resisted until 1868. But you are right to point out that these debates expand and transform the terrain of citizenship and rights for all of those in the United States, not simply for black Americans, that while we can tell the story certainly as one driven by the questions, by the dilemma, by the activism of black Americans, the puzzle that they present before the Constitution, the Constitution, the 14th Amendment itself is not written exclusively to apply to former slaves and their descendants, but applies to everyone. And that's important because, of course, in subsequent generations, now the status of many others, the next episode is going to be one concerning Chinese Americans, those born to Chinese immigrants, not to African Americans at all. And this same 14th Amendment will have to arbitrate their belonging as well. And we, of course, all live with some relationship to this amendment and its birthright provision, even until today. I am born in the city of New York, and I am a citizen by virtue of my birth. But that is not the case for everyone. It is still an amendment that arbitrates national belonging, adapting, if you will, or being adapted to new contexts over time.
you bring up children of Chinese immigrants. I will have a couple episodes on the Chinese Exclusion Act and its impact on today's politics. It plays itself out in all sorts of venues. So from 1882 till roughly post-World War II, the strict limitation of immigrants from China. And there are a couple other cases, the Korematsu case of the internment of Japanese Americans who are citizens of this country and are interned by their own government. The Supreme Court this past summer in 2018 finally overturned this case, which was interesting in a decision that had little to do with it because this probably was the moment to still do it on the court. The category, before I ask you, why is the 14th Amendment debated so much today? What about the category of women? Why aren't they given the right to vote? The franchise at this point is another huge struggle. And a lot of the abolitionists you talked about had also included the right to vote for women in America, but that wasn't achieved in 1868. No. And we point to what was an old and important coalition of anti-slavery activists and women's rights advocates who convened throughout the 1860s to try and develop a strategy and a position on first the 14th Amendment, which inserts the word male into the Constitution for the first time, and then the 15th Amendment, which looked to protect the right to vote for African-American men, but not for any American women. This is a fraught question for a coalition that had worked largely outside of politics for most of its history and is now facing the fact of politics that we all know, at least in a theoretical sense, which is the deep problem of compromise. And there are really differing, strongly differing views about the degree to which this coalition should compromise with the political process, accept the terms of these new amendments as they are, or work to defeat them. And it is a debate that will splinter this coalition in interesting ways with white and black women on both sides, white and black men on both sides, but importantly, signaling to us that the work or the aspirations for the moment of the 14th Amendment have not been fully realized, and no one in this coalition would have denied that, that there is a disappointment for their aspiration, their theoretical commitment to universal suffrage that includes women, but that is not to be. And the 14th Amendment for women remains awkward, ill-fitting, and in the 19th century, tremendously disappointing, whether it's women who continue to campaign for political rights like the right to vote, or women who seek to join the professions like the bar. The 14th Amendment is not going to be a remedy. It's important to say it is increasingly not a remedy for African Americans either, which is to say in the years subsequent to Reconstruction, the Supreme Court is going to take a very narrow view of these powerful language, equal protection of the laws, um, the privileges or immunities of citizenship, birthright citizenship itself. The Supreme Court is going to narrow the interpretation of these provisions rather than give them sort of robust and thoroughgoing meaning. That's true for African Americans before the 14th Amendment, and it's true for black and white women before the 14th Amendment. So 
It's a reminder to us that the amendment is one part law and one part political theory and one big part politics. And so that whatever its terms are, whatever might have been intended by Congress, the reading of the amendment is going to be left to an important degree to the U.S. Supreme Court. And it is going to take an increasingly narrow view, getting us to, by the end of the 1890s, the case of Plessy versus Ferguson, where equal will said to condone separate and Jim Crow segregation becomes constitutional and consistent rather than an abrogation of the 14th Amendment. And so then we have a history of court decisions that set it back or, as you say, narrow this understanding of equality by saying separate accommodations, for example, or limitations on travel, on professions, on all sorts of things are acceptable for another hundred years or so, let's say until the decisions in Brown versus Board of Education or the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s. Why do you think there's such a discussion around the 14th Amendment today when you just said it's up to the Supreme Court to really interpret it and they narrowed it in a certain way? And then I've talked to a couple of people and I can tell you on the podcast, some legal scholars or some of your colleagues who are professors of law are aghast at the fact that our president raises the idea or that senators are raising the idea that they want to get rid of the birthright citizen clause. So you had just written a book on how it came about. It was a very difficult, long struggle. You're saying it's a 50-year struggle, really, or it's a 100-year struggle. It's not in one year they decide to give people birthright citizenship. So what do you make of these current debates around this issue? Well, I'm of the view that there really is no period in our history when we've been free from a debate about citizenship, which is to say in a democracy, and here I am a great admirer of the political theorist Bonnie Honig, you know, Honig says, this is what democracy is, is many things, but one of the things that democracy is, is a ever-present struggle over who is in and who is out, who is a member of the body politic, and who is not. And so, while I don't condone the president, certainly, and I don't welcome this debate, I'm not surprised that we're having it, because we have had a version of this debate in a recurring sense throughout our history. In the African-American story that I tell in Birthright Citizens, the story of Chinese Americans by the early 20th century, there will be, you know, the denaturalization of American women who marry non-citizens. On and on, this is a permanent dimension of our democracy, and we are in the latest chapter in that very difficult debate. It's too easy to say, but I think my colleagues should be better students of history and history of citizenship before they are genuinely aghast that here we are. The second thing to say is that going back at least to 2015, then-candidate Donald Trump made clear that he was aiming for birthright citizenship, that he believed this was one of the facets of his vision for immigration reform, and he aimed to close what he thought, seems to still believe is a, a loophole in the 14th Amendment that permits the children of unauthorized immigrants to enjoy birthright citizenship. We'll see 
about that. Certainly, there's no reason to think that that is a sure thing or the way the court will interpret the amendment should it get a chance to revisit it. But there's nothing surprising about candidate Trump, now President Trump, making good on that promise. It was one of the positions that ignited his base. And if you follow his base, as I do very gently on Twitter, you're not surprised at all. More importantly, I would say for my colleagues in the legal academy, you don't have to follow Twitter or the rhetoric of Donald Trump to know that there have been quite distinguished colleagues, Roger Smith and Peter Schock in particular, who have long written about their views about the 14th Amendment, about the amendment's not only vulnerability to interpretation, but the necessity of its further interpretation by Congress. Now, it seems that Schock and Smith are of the view that Congress has the authority to interpret the subject to the jurisdiction thereof phrase in the 14th Amendment to determine who is in and who is out by way of that phrase. Their position seems to be that Congress should interpret the phrase to include the children of undocumented immigrants, but they cede that there is an open question, one that should be resolved in their view by Congress rather than the president. But it's to say, um, Chuck and Smith have been making that argument for more than 20 years, so you have to only read the Yale Law Review or their very widely reviewed book to know that this is my mother would say, you know, this is a matter for serious people and not simply for the non-serious. So I'm sorry if folks feel blindsided, and I think or many of us feel morally and politically deeply concerned by the president's rhetoric, but it's neither new nor surprising. And at least in my view, given how little we know about the new makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court and where it might take us on many sorts of questions, I, for one, am not prepared to say unequivocally among my peers that I think the answer to the question is foreordained. And I certainly would not say that to the individuals whose lives are on the front lines, that we do not know enough about where the politics of this nation is taking us such that we can reassure blithely, you know, who among us doesn't regret, you know, the blithe reassurances around the travel ban? Well, you know, the administration got it wrong twice, and the third time they got it right enough, and they got a travel ban. And so I think, particularly when we're speaking on a podcast, and in circles, right, where our ideas are available and will be used by all sorts of folks, including those who are trying to figure out their own lives, I think being better read on the subject might help and exercising for me a kind of caution rather than overassurance in a political moment like this. That's my take, though I respect those who are better students of the court than I and think they know how this might play out. I think what you're saying is as a historian and a lawyer who's practiced law and sort of seen the everyday application, you're saying... The law is not as static as we would maybe sometimes want it to be or sometimes don't want it to be. We also have seen that we wanted court decisions to be overturned. And I think part of what I was reflecting is that people have been aghast. They are 
kind of outrage that comments are made politically that have no basis on the kind of knowledge that you just brought, but actually just saying, we want to get rid of this, or we want to get rid of that, or we want to deprive people of their nationality. And so it opens up such a rapid kind of compromise on people's rights. So I think the outrage is almost existential or more visceral rather than intellectual, where they're saying, we know, we've studied, we know, we understand there are ways, political and legal ways, to undo certain things or correct or amend certain things. But I think there's a sense in which what people find complicated that it's thrown into the political and cultural discourse of our nation as a statement, saying we're going to get rid of the 14th Amendment. People think that is not right. actually how it can be done. But then there are a lot of people who don't have the time to, you know, and read the real law review. It's, you know, difficult. So I think that there are two dimensions to this. There's the kind of informed what can really happen? What is the reasonable worry? And the other one, I can't even be worried. I just want to be angry that it is being posed in this simplified way. Well, I know I'm hectoring a little bit, colleagues who aren't here to speak for themselves. So you're very gracious. It's totally it's very fine. important <laughs> that you do so. But I, for one, don't think this is a time this is a time for serious people to do serious work, right? And if you have the knowledge and the skills and the access, yes, I share. I have shed the tears. I certainly have in these days after Trump's latest revelation related to birthright citizenship. But we have work to do. And so that is where I'm trying to put my energy, which is in the work by getting knowledge out there, getting critical perspectives out there. You know, I'm a student of Derek Bell at the end of the day, you know, and Bell told us, you know, a generation ago, right, that there's nothing fixed or predictable or sure about law, that law is politics. And we, if we care about law, and we believe in something even like the rule of law, then we have to be willing to do the work to make that true, to make that right. Because, you know, in his wonderful space traders allegory, you know, Bell shows us, you know, aliens can come from the sky and persuade this nation to do things that seem unspeakable. And aren't we exactly there? What Bell told us could happen. So let's get to work. And I know people are busy at work and we're all entitled to time for our grief and our anger and our despair. But we also all have work to do. And at least my view is that part of the work is to providing people who do not know the story, the law longer story of birthright citizenship, do not know that it comes out of the struggle of former slaves, do not know how it has functioned to insulate some important part of our nation from racism, but also from all sorts of prejudices and xenophobia when it comes to citizenship. People need to know that. We need to know. It's not enough to say this is the rule, or this is the way it's been, or this is the precedent or the practice. I think we have to make an affirmative argument in the 21st century for why we need birthright. Just because it was always this way or has been so for 150 years is not enough to me in 2018 America. And so the strongest argument I can make is that birthright protects not only people from being discriminated against when it comes to citizenship by virtue of race, that is the example of African Americans, by virtue of religion, by virtue of descent or national origin, by virtue of 
politics of party affiliation, that American citizenship, this dimension of it, has been insulated from some of the most heinous episodes in our history precisely because it was written the way it was. It does not honor the kind of political prejudices that are laced through our history. That, to me, is a reason to keep it even today, that we need a citizenship regime that is not vulnerable right, to politics, that is not vulnerable, you know, that the children of the most despised members of our nation are still citizens, whether you are a member of the Communist Party in the early part of the 20th century, or you are a Muslim American in the earliest decades of the 21st, your children are citizens of the United States, they share that baseline with all others. And that's a reason that's not based in what we've done before. That is a reason based in who we are today and who we want to be in the future. I think we need those kinds of arguments too. Yeah, no, Martha, I, I actually love what you just said. And I really think you made such a strong case for knowing the history of this in order to understand that things are not settled, not to be taken for granted, which somewhat I think tempers the level of there can be outrage, there can be grief, there can be anger, there's politicized opinion. But at the same time, you're saying once you understand the history of this particular concept, which is so fundamental, then it allows you to do work, actually, to counter this rather than to say, it's settled, I understand, and let's move on. You cannot touch it. You're saying, actually, to study, it gives you the tools, the power and the knowledge to not be defeated by someone saying, I don't believe in this. And you, you just made an argument why you should believe in it. So... I'm going to put the links to both your book, which I hope people will pick up. It's a really gripping story also. I love the way it's written. It really, I couldn't put it down. And Thank you so much. There is really the kind of power of historical fiction and the kind of sweep. And I put some links to your other, the essays you've written more recently. And I really want to thank you for joining me today on Think About It. Thanks so much for having me. No, it's great. Thank you so much.